excuse me, John 2 verse 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. They have no wine. And we shall consider uh, verses 1 to 12 of this chapter as we uh, continue our series on the seven signs of this uh, gospel. Now, just briefly, as I bring you into chapter 2 this week, you'll remember that the book, uh, the Gospel of John, is designed around seven signs, a number of fullness, and that in them there is a glory revealed, and that glory we considered was the glory of his person and the glory of his work, and both are needed uh, to to be saved believingly. As the end of this gospel states, we must come to know him for who he is, and we must believe in him and his work. So, um, as these signs reveal his person and his work, verse 14 of chapter 1 said that that glory was the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, So the only begotten Son is his identity, and we considered that at length, and I began to touch on um, his work with you. And the point of his work, though we didn't speak about the cross specifically and uh, his atonement, but um, the point of his work which I drew out was that John is uh, specifically teaching in this gospel that um, because of the fullness of who Christ is, when he accomplishes his work of redemption, there is a flood or fullness of spiritual grace and provision that come from him in the gospel. Uh, If you remember that I said that to you, that's in verse 16 of chapter 1. Out of or of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace or grace for grace. Um, And that's showing us that Christ is who he is coming from the Trinity, tabernacled or enfleshed among us, as John says, and that when he accomplishes redemption, when that barrier of sin and guilt and alienation is removed and there's reconciliation, when he indwells a sinner and regenerates a sinner and brings that sinner into intimate relationship with him, We call that union with Christ, union and communion. And there is a a conduit between him and us through the Holy Spirit, who is in him in heaven. He is Messiah anointed. Anointed with what? The Holy Spirit above measure. And that that, um, portion of grace and truth and savingness has been deposited with him as mediator Messiah. He, it's coming from him in heaven, and he's the one from whom the Holy Spirit comes unto us. Remember, Paul says he is the Spirit of Christ, and he's in our hearts, producing a cry of Abba, Father, turning us from our sin, shedding abroad the love of God in the heart, and flooding the soul 
with the grace and truth that John speaks of here. He is the only begotten of the Father, person, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace upon grace coming into the Christian to strengthen the Christian, fill the Christian with all the transformation, power, and glory of the gospel and the fruits of the Spirit. That's what we are as believers, if we are believers. We're receivers and receptacles of all that is in Christ in the covenant of grace. So he's the only begotten of the Father. He is full of grace and truth. And of his fullness have you received and grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Now that um, sending forth and flowing out of Christ in grace is shown from different angles in these seven signs. A fullness of joy and power or a resurrecting life or a bread of the atonement of uh, the flesh of the Son of God which we must eat and the water of life that he speaks of. He who eats my flesh, he says in this gospel, drinks my blood. He has life in my name. Each of these has a different angle to make this tapestry or relief that you and I can look at. And John says that when we do, we see his glory. He's the only begotten son. And I see him in Cana. I see him multiplying the bread. I see him drawing forth the dead from the tomb. I see the rivers of water flowing out of my soul having received it from him. I see the lame raised. I see all of that. And John says that when you see those great seven signs, you're seeing the fullness of the grace and life and glory of Jesus Christ. That's why John chose these seven. He hung them up in a gallery so that people would see the glory of the only begottenness and the work of grace and salvation of Jesus Christ. Now one thing, just as I uh, open the, uh, the wedding at Cana uh, to you, is that when you read this gospel then in light of that, you'll see that as John is a Jew, he is identifying Jesus with the God of the Old Testament as he does this in the seven signs and in some of the incidents that happen in between these miracles. John is lifting Christ up here and showing both the Jew and the Greek who is coming in, the Gentile, that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And that as that old covenant was restricted, as its emphasis was condemnation and conviction with grace within it, but it emphasized sin, that that would now uh, be graduated from in this new covenant. That it would be superseded by a blazing forth and clarity, not of something that's covered and has an emphasis of condemnation, but that is clear. Now, what I mean by that is this. If you think of Sinai, Christ is there. Christ is the, the Son of God revealing God the Father. And as God descends on Sinai, the outward manifestation is fire, trembling, earthquake. Do not touch this mountain or you will die. It emphasizes my sin. 
It shows me I must take God seriously. It shows me that God's holiness is my problem. But within that fire, when Moses went into it, he saw the beauty of the Lord. And he said, show me your glory. Have you, have you not just seen it, Moses? Shaking the mountain. But show me the innermost recess of your glory. And that's when he revealed his name, wasn't it? He said, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious, merciful, long-suffering. This is the same being that's shaking the mountain and threatening to kill them. But he is long-suffering. He is gracious and merciful if we come to him through the means that he's appointed. But you see there, the emphasis was the glory of his holiness and judgments, but within it, tabernacled within it, hidden within it. If you come to know him, you find a fountain of grace. That happened in the tabernacle itself. That's the construction of the tabernacle. It's rough and made of goat skins and badger skins um, or sea whale skin, whatever the, the right translation is. But there were these rough, dark skins that covered the tabernacle. It was rough. It was intimidating. It didn't look beautiful and it covered the tabernacle. But when you went inside, it was gold. When you went inside, there was a mercy seat and a sacrifice provided for you and a reconciliation and the light of God's holiness, grace and glory to be seen. You stand outside the tabernacle, you're not seeing that glory. When Moses and Aaron went in, they saw it. Now that's interesting because John opens his gospel here and when he says in chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that's the word tabernacle. It's a technical word. The word creator, the God of Sinai, tabernacled or tented among us and we beheld his glory. John's saying, I've seen what Moses saw and more. Moses saw elements of his glory but he became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. And he goes on to show Jesus came down in a tabernacle and revealed that glory. He is the God of the Old Testament. Behold the Lamb, John says. That's the key text of his gospel. Behold the Lamb of God. Chapter 1 verse 29, who takes away the sin of the world. John is telling his Jewish brethren there, and any Gentile who's interested, by saying lamb, that's not just the Passover lamb, by saying the lamb of God, he's saying, see all those sacrifices in Exodus, every one of them in Leviticus, all of them, they all spoke about Jesus. They all gave an angle on the immensity of that one sacrifice Jesus is about to give. The day of atonement, the feast of tabernacles, the Passover, Pentecost, uh, Abraham offering Isaac, all these sacrifices. Any time an Israelite said, God, accept me to be near you, and I, want, I, I, I wish to know you and love you and show your grace and mercy to me, forgive me, every Israelite had to put a substitute in front of him and say, on the basis of this, accept me. Every one of those sacrifices was a type and prophecy of Jesus. There aren't many of them. There's only one thing that can be offered on God's altar to bring us to know the Father, and it's Christ. 
Behold the Lamb of God. Now you'll see as you go through the book then that, that Jesus is presented by John. Uh, that as John remembered each feast and what Jesus did and said at each feast, uh, John could see a parallel between Jesus and the God of the Old Testament. So when Jesus, John was there when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. John was there and he says that Jesus pointed out to Nicodemus that he was the brazen serpent in the wilderness. That's an Old Testament covenant uh, passage. In chapter 6, the great Passover um, chapter, where the bread is given to all the people and multiplied, we're told that the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus had an immense crowd before him, probably of ten to 20,000. And he fed them from the provision that had been given to one boy. And there's a contrast there. John is saying the old is finishing. He doesn't say it's the Passover of the Lord. Or that we really want to keep doing the Passover. He says it's the Passover of the Jews. That's what it had become, a ceremony. And he doesn't go to Jerusalem and say, look how we all did Passover together. He says, no, the real Passover was on a hill in Galilee. Because Jesus multiplied the bread and fed his people with his word and his sacrifice. Jesus said, uh, the, the, the bread I give is my flesh, he says. This Passover is sacrificial, Jesus says. And what's represented by my body must be received by your soul. What's represented by my blood must be received by your soul. And John is looking at it and saying, God has come down. He's among his people again. And he's feeding them. And the Jews were very unthankful and said, no, no. It was Moses who fed us, they said to Jesus. Moses fed us. We're the students of Moses. Who are you? Moses gave us the manna from heaven. What do you give us? And Jesus rebuts them and says, Moses didn't give you any manna. It wasn't Moses. It was my father. And now he's given you a greater manna and you reject it. I am the manna. So there's Jesus, the God of the Old Testament. You see in chapter 8, at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a, a feast of tenting to remember when they went through the wilderness and menorah lamps are lit in Jerusalem and in the temple and in the temple courtyard. In Herod's temple, there were two large menorah lamps made of gold in the courtyard, outer courtyard of the temple. They were as tall as this auditorium and they shone and you could see them from all around Jerusalem and the Jews obviously loved coming and lighting the menorah lamp and they would march around the altar singing Psalm 118 and saying how much they loved God and wanted God and loved their temple. And they were praying for the Romans to be driven out. They were singing as they marched around the altar, the priests. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The stone which the builders have rejected have become the cornerstone. And Jesus went to that feast and he went in that temple as they did all these ceremonies, as we do as Reformed people. If you only have the outward thing, you might not have the inward thing. They were doing all of that, and they had no inward reality at all. Because when Jesus arrived, as much as they were singing that, and lighting the lamp, and speaking about light, when he was there teaching one morning, 
the Pharisees arrived with a woman in their clutches that they were going to use to trap Jesus. The man wasn't there uh, who was supposedly caught in adultery, just this woman that they wanted to use. And they wanted Jesus to tell them to stone her. And that's when Jesus shone his light first into her heart and showed her grace. And then he shone his light into every man and boy that came in that morning. And they went away one by one convicted. And he, and he said to that woman, I am the light of the world. You see what John's doing? John is saying Christ is the Passover bread. Christ is the Passover lamb. Christ is the menorah lamp. He is the light. Light your golden lamps all you want. It wouldn't make a difference unless this spiritual light comes into your heart. Now, I want to draw that out so that when you're reading John, you're seeing these signs image him forth and you're seeing that John is saying the old is going and the new is coming. It's subsuming it under itself. It's, it's moving beyond it and bursting forth in a greater and clearer glory. So Christ is the Son of God. Christ's work emits his glory, and his fullness and salvation comes to his people. And Christ is the fulfillment of that whole old order. All those types speak of him, and he's walking around, and they're all inside him. He is the light. He is the water. He is the wine. He is all the goodness that God has to give us. Now John's looking back as he does that. When he comes, when he opens his chapter here, he, he goes to the very beginning of these signs when that glory was first unfolded. And we're told it happened at a wedding in Cana. And I want to see this first sign under four heads the scene, the dilemma, the sign, and the, the plenitude or fullness of grace. The scene, the dilemma, the sign, and the fullness of grace. We'll spend most of our time on the sign uh, itself. But first of all, the scene here. The Lord is invited uh, to a wedding. Uh, on the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, Christ is invited uh, to this wedding. He's just returned from Jordan, having been baptized and going before John the Baptist and being identified as the Lamb of God and drawing some disciples under him. Two of them were John's, John the Baptist's disciples. That's the Apostle John and Peter's brother, Andrew. They were followers of John, and they saw John call Jesus the Lamb of God and spent several days with him. And we can only imagine the fullness and the delight of what they were told and what they discovered as they spent time with him in private conference. He also then called Nathaniel because he knew uh, these disciples. And um, he said amazing things to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel actually says to him, you are the son of God, Nathaniel says to him. What a wonderful uh, thing. Uh, Nathaniel is from Cana, so we don't know if they then go north to Cana because Nathaniel is from there, or if Christ says to Nathaniel, come with us, we are going to Cana 
anyway because there is a wedding uh, in Cana. So we, we don't know exactly how Jesus was brought to this wedding, if it was arranged sometime before, or if he went to Cana and found out his own family was there, and then he and his disciples were in an unplanned way invited to the wedding. But we know that Jesus' mother was invited uh, to this wedding from the verses I just read to you. Uh, the mother of Jesus uh, was there. And in verse 12, it says, After the wedding, he went to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brethren, and his disciples. So some of Jesus' brothers, it seems, may have been uh, at this wedding too. Jesus had four brothers at least, and probably two sisters. Um, because when his sisters are mentioned, it's not a singular sister, it's plural. So it seems that he had at least four brothers and at least two sisters. Uh, the brothers are mentioned here, and it, it's probably that the f Christ's family, his natural family, was either related to or friends with uh, this, this marrying family in Cana. So Christ goes there with his disciples. These weddings lasted um, a week usually seven days which is interesting in itself because John is numbering days here he says on the third day or the next day um, seven is important to John the wedding happens to be in the Jewish context usually a week and the ceremony itself is only a part of the wedding there's a long feast and all the, these different events that go on for the week and you would go and you would say uh, well, my family can come to day one and two, and other families might arrive on day four. So you've got this constant flow of people coming to this house in Cana for feasts, essentially. Every evening there would uh, be a feast. Um, marriage was a really significant event in the Jewish theology for obvious reasons. I mean, it's, it still is to the Jews. Um, Jews is... Jewish weddings are very elaborate. Um, they knew it imaged forth Jehovah and his people and Israel as the bride and that there was something Edenic. There was something about the way God built us with Adam and Eve and then God marrying his people that these things are imaged in that relationship and great significance was attached to marriage. You'll know even the apostles did this. Paul utilizes it in the New Testament era and says that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and so on and the wife to the husband uh, that it it pictures forth something about God and his people that is beautiful the rabbis would were even teaching by this time that the marriage ceremony itself cleansed the two participants from sin it's almost like a sacrament so there's all this added uh, to it at the time but you can see the significance with which they held it when you were engaged if you broke that engagement it was like a divorce the engagement was very strong contracts were signed dowries were agreed to um, this transfer from one family into another uh, was very significant and elaborate and involved big financial arrangements Jesus goes uh, to this wedding knowing the, significant, the, the significance that Jews attach uh, to this event. And I think that's why he chose to perform a miracle first here. You'll notice there's no one sick. 
There isn't anyone lame. There isn't a leper. There's no demon possession. He makes the choice consciously to begin his ministry in something that's to do with the beginning, to do with Genesis 2, Adam and Eve, the beginning. That's how John opens his gospel. In the beginning was the word. Our chapter, this beginning of signs, did Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. There's a sense of beginning that's important here. And he doesn't choose to, to heal someone. He chooses something broader. Um, and that, that takes a broad brushstroke of the big change between old covenant and new and the great fruit and blessings and beauty and joy that comes from this newness. The newness is very important here and this is why he chooses a wedding. Uh, the Old Testament uh, uh, speaks of uh, God and his people as in this dynamic relationship imaged by a marriage. Isaiah 62 verse 4 you shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land um, any more be termed desolate. You shall be called Hephzibah, which means my pleasure is in her. And you shall be called Beulah, married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. That's all new covenant from Isaiah. Once the suffering servant comes... Once he cleanses the temple, once he cleanses Israel of its leprosy and contamination, once he suffers for them, once their, their iniquity is laid upon him, once he is pierced for their transgressions, once he is cursed and broken for them, once the wrath of his father is poured out and all the storehouses of God's wrath for Israel and his people is expended upon the servant, then glorious blessings come. This unfaithful engaged woman, his church, his kingdom, Israel, she had been unfaithful to him when she was engaged to him and he doesn't... Uh, he doesn't destroy her. He comes in his election, both Jew and Gentile, you and me. He comes though the engaged party was an adulteress, you and me. And instead of giving us what we deserve, we say unto him, forgive me, Lord, forgive me. And this future husband says, yes, I will die for and receive the just penalty for every inclination your heart has ever had away from me in sin. I'll pay for it and I will cleanse you and purchase you and take you to my home and you shall be my bride without spot and blemish. What a husband. What a bridegroom, as John the Baptist calls him. What a bridegroom. That's what Isaiah is speaking of. But when God's judgment comes and when Israel is not being faithful for centuries before this moment, um, she received some of that Amos chapter 8 we read, some of that day of the Lord. The cities 
of Judah, Jeremiah says, in the streets of Jerusalem shall be desolate, without man and inhabitant, without beast, and the voice of joy and of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, and all who say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. That voice will be gone. Jerusalem will be desolate, and it will happen to any church who turns away from Christ. Any group of churches or Israel in the Old Covenant, there is mercy, but a line can be crossed where the land becomes hard and he sends in the Assyrian army and the rains shut up from heaven and darkness instead of sunlight and the Assyrian army comes in and loots all of the ten tribes of Israel. Babylon comes in and loots Judah and destroys her religious a temple and her vessels and takes her sons to Babylon and in the refining fire of captivity an elect is preserved but that's what happens to Israel and the church so though Jesus comes here and says I'm the joyful Messiah who's come there's another side to this when Israel is following the Lord and when the church is following the Lord and loving Christ. There are all manner of blessings that flood to us from him. But in times of unfaithfulness, presumption, resistance, shallowness, when we foolishly give ourselves to the world again, corporately, and compromise and change his ordinances and corrupt his church, there are consequences. And we don't play around with this. We may ask, is the consequence that will be judged as a church, but will come out of it again and be revived? Or is the consequence that we're judged in the darkness of that judgment and we'll all go to hell? You know, which judgment is it? Is it one that will ultimately redeem us or is it one that will permanently uh, make his outward professing people confirmed in their lostness? I don't... My... Uh, my uh, concern about it and my burden about it is that he wouldn't judge us not whether whether i'm going to come out of it again don't do the things that will bring us judgment what kind of person says i'm going to antagonize my my redeemer husband because i can get away with this because eventually he'll show me mercy again that i may be proving if i actually have that attitude and it, it prevails in me i may be showing that that my grasp of the gospel is outward and that, that love for Christ isn't there. We love Christ. We're not going to provoke him to judge and to make the voice and joy of the bridegroom and the, uh, the bride cease. The joy of Israel, the joy of the church. We don't want that. And we don't want ever God to look upon us as a church and pronounce upon us desolate we don't want that ever to happen. And, and it can happen. It can happen to denominations. The glory departs, and then there's desolation on land and church. Well, Jesus comes here to extend his hand in this sign so that that wouldn't happen. He goes and chooses this wedding to show that as the old covenant emphasized condemnation, then they, they must turn to their Messiah and bridegroom and embrace him 
and the, the, the glorious power and joy and grace of the wine of the gospel, of the wine of the new covenant and the feasting and joy and celebration of the new covenant, that that can be ours in union with Christ. He provides that. So that's the situation, and these are some of the truths that, that come from the fact that Jesus chose a wedding to begin his ministry. He's saying something about himself as a bridegroom and being married to his people and providing a feast of joy for his people and the ultimate marriage supper of the Lamb, that the church, when she is perfected at the end of time, will come down as a bride adorned for her husband and there will be an eternal marriage. These are all, I think, part of why he chooses to begin at a wedding and not just heal someone. He's saying something about the old order and the new. So that's the scene. Then, the, secondly, the dilemma. And the dilemma, you know well, it's that um, they run out of wine. Uh, Jesus' mother comes to him in verse 3. And when the wine had run out, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Now, like I said, this, ma this wedding lasts for seven days. And there's a lot of pressure on the people that are holding the wedding in Jewish honor and respect to provide all of the food and the wine that's needed. This is a big family event. And one way to show that your family is in industrious and has done well and that it's a good family for someone to join in marriage and that you're part of the community and you're willing to bless your neighbor and so on as you invite the whole community to your home and you're you're providing these things. It was technically the groom who had to provide the wine. The groom had to do it. The groom's family. So you're giving your daughter away in marriage. You're giving away as someone who can work for your family, someone who can keep house in your family. But every father wants his daughter to be married. I suppose if he's um, if his heart is right and he wants her to be happy, especially if she's met someone, and he's giving his daughter to this person but there is a big pressure on the receiving family to make sure that everything's done properly and in order and that they show that uh, give honor to this giving family this woman is coming into our family and this is the significance of that giving that we hold this feast and we provide all of these things now you can imagine the pressure that these um, people uh, were under there's money exchanging hands. There's money being spent on food and a large sum of money being spent on wine. And it wasn't just for hospitality and honor. Um, it was in Jewish law by this time. That's how important weddings were in the Jewish world. As speaking of Jehovah and his people, it was central to their faith starting a family and starting a home there were elaborate ceremonies of how the bride was to go to the groom's home jesus mentions it in his parables the you would have bridesmaids who would hold torches and there would be a a ceremonial procession as she arrives at the groom's house um, so jesus was aware of the the elaborateness of these ceremonies but there were contracts there was the it was in jewish law that if you ran out of wine, the bridegroom could be fined and, and prosecuted. So he would start off his, 
marriage to this woman, having looked really incapable to her parents and offending her family and there being this, you know, daughter-in-law problem between him and his in-laws. And starting with that, he would have been fined for this and there would be issues of trust and it was a shame on him and his family in the community. So you can understand why this concerned the people that were realizing were low on wine and they, they slowly watch it beginning to run out, then there's none left. And they tell Mary about it and she's clearly concerned that this is happening. Because of what I just mentioned, the, the consequences weren't small. And she comes and says, they have no wine. Now this, this is then a dilemma. And many commentators say that Mary that um, she came to her son because um, she wasn't sure what to do, but she just thought, well, Jesus might know what to do because of the trust that she has in her son, having observed him for many years, even well into adulthood. He's 30 at this point, and he was clearly capable, wise, knowledgeable, righteous. He, more than any man, knew what to do in certain scenarios and some people say well she came to him just because well what do we do her husband has passed away at this point Jesus is running the family well we'll, we'll, I'm going to tell him and, and and see what he might do about it but I think there's more to it than just that she, she knew of his wisdom and who he was and so on and that's because of the tender rebuke he gives her in verse 4 Woman, what have I to do with you? Or what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. If it had just been that she thought he was wise, it's very unlikely that that, um, that, that rebuke would be given. It doesn't make any sense. She says to him, well, there's a problem. Can you help? And then he rebukes her. That doesn't make any sense. There's more to this here. Now consider it from her point of view. She's been waiting several decades for the manifestation of Jesus' fullness and ministry. She knows who he, who he is, the prophecies that were given at birth and so on, and she's watched him. And she's waiting. Her husband has passed away. Jesus is in the home, and she's thinking when he's 25, when is this going to happen? 26, when is this going to happen? He's 30 now, and he's now left the home. He was publicly baptized and anointed with the Holy Spirit and declared to be the Messiah by John the Baptist, the greatest prophet alive at the time. Now, she would, she would have heard some of this, and now he's drawing in disciples who are becoming his students. He's basically become officially a rabbi, and she's waiting for his manifestation. She doesn't know exactly what it will all look like. She was told by Simeon, a sword will pierce your own soul. And she will have certain expectations. But she's there. This is the first time she's seen him since he's been baptized. And then he disappeared for over a month into the wilderness, like an Old Testament prophet. Then he comes back and people are saying he's the Messiah. And he arrives with students having his own rabbinic school. And she's thinking, now's the time. Now is the time. 
she feels that tension within herself. So it's probably a combination of the two, that she's there and she would have gone to him anyway. But I think the Holy Spirit is pointing out here that when she goes to him, there's something in her that's, that's nudging him or trying to direct him in some way or suggest to him that he act, that he act openly, that he do something obvious, that he declare himself uh, to be uh, who he, he truly is. Um, don't underestimate that expectation at this time. Um, all of the Pharisees and the temple authorities are debating the identity of the Messiah at the time. They, the reason they rejected Jesus wasn't because they didn't know a Messiah was coming. They, they very much did. It's that they, they didn't think he fit the, the description of Messiah. They are debating Daniel's prophecy almost down to the decade, 490 years since the reestablishment of Jerusalem. This is messianic fervor at this time. They're looking everywhere for Messiah. Mary's aware of that. And, and she knows her son is the Messiah. And she's thinking, when will he reveal himself? The prophet said that the Messiah would heal people and do wondrous things and be a greater than Moses. Um, when will he do this? He seems so humble and he's just working and he's just teaching. When will he be revealed as not just the son of David, but the son of God. And I think that tension's within her. It tells us it's there because Jesus doesn't like what he perceives is in her heart. Remember Jesus, it says, actually in this chapter, he did not commit himself to men because he knew what was in man. He, he perceives things in the heart and the inclination and the intention of someone. And he says to her, woman, not mother, woman it's not derogatory maybe if one of the men here said to one of the ladies here listen woman that's not necessarily a good thing to say depending on how, how it's meant but jesus doesn't mean it that way you could call someone woman then but it's it isn't mother and he's definitely teaching her a distance woman and then he adds a distancing phrase to it what that's none of your business, he says to her. Woman, what does that have to do with me? Woman, what have you to do with me? That's not your concern. My hour has not yet come. Now he mentions the hour because she thinks the hour has come. She, she, she's nudging him and saying, show, show yourself. Do something. Is it at this wedding? When are you going to reveal yourself? And Jesus has to teach her that that's not her concern and that he will not be directed at all by her or Peter or James and John or James and John's parents. He will not be directed, not just by them, but by me and you. He will not be directed by us, even in... The, the smallest thing, compelling him uh, to, to do something. His hour must not be rushed. Others will try and rush it, but it must go according exactly to 
um, God's timing of that hour. My hour has not yet come. And if I start raining down the glories of heaven and the chariots of fire, and if I, if I start shaking Jerusalem, and if I stand up in the temple and declare to the chief priests and Pharisees like what happened in the wilderness, let the ground swallow them all up, and so on, and do these dramatic things, not carefully and not at the right time, I'm only going to increase opposition and fervor that's completely fleshly, whether people don't like me or do like me. In this gospel, he multiplied the bread and the fish, and the people grabbed him and compelled him to become king. And most of them, it wasn't spiritual at all. Jesus doesn't want that amount of attention. All that opposition and all that supposedly supportive fervor is going to make carrying out his ministry extremely complicated. The hour will come when it comes. Then he'll be manifest as the king of Israel. Then he'll be manifest as the king of the Gentiles, under whom all the nations will fall. After Pentecost, or at his ascension and then Pentecost, that's where his enthronement actually happened. Mary's thinking, my son I was told he's the king of Israel. And Jesus is saying, the, the route to that enthronement is quite different than you think it is. It's not going to be because glory is revealed at this wedding and then the whole nation will accept me. My hour has not yet come. So he distances um, himself lovingly from her. And that's not a harsh thing, by the way. He does honor his father and mother. Um, he honors her as much as his human nature is her son right so he'll fulfill that part of the commandment but jesus is unique he doesn't just have he in his human nature he had a mother in his divine nature and in his divine person he had no mother so he has a unique relationship to a parent if god is his father he told them that at 12 years old he how strongly conscious he was of it even at 12 now he's 30 this is gentle from him he could have said more at 12 they said she said to him, me and your father have been looking everywhere for you and we were worried. And he said, did you, what, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So he has this consciousness, very strongly even at 12, that he has human parents, but this, the, the superseding that is his father. He's a divine person. You and I can... Uh, learn uh, something uh, f from this, uh, even though we're not dealing with a divine and human person. Um, if you're a parent, uh, parents are to raise their children and teach them to think and for them to exercise wisdom and know the word of God. But there are some parents who say, my child is going to be this or is going to go here and do this and they completely control them and they're constantly nudging them and so on and the truth is and this isn't about that's the, the big problem with that is that when we do that we're making the same mistake as Mary because what we forget about our children is once they profess faith in Christ they have a private relationship with God they have a father and and 
unless it's truly foolish and so on, if God inclines their heart and gives them life experiences and places a burden on their heart, God doesn't need to come and check with you first and inform you. You could be wrong about what your 18-year-old or 25-year-old should be doing. And there are some really ugly manifestations of sin, even in so-called Christians, where, where mothers try to control their 25-year-old sons and the father and mother, even for years, are still putting down their children and saying, you're always doing the wrong thing and you didn't do my wishes and so on. That's all wrong. Well, it's a similar sin um, that we raise them and then they're adopted by God and then the Spirit of God imbibes them and they are to take up their cross and follow him. They are disciples then of Jesus Christ. He is their master, not you. And you are there to, to help and direct, but you have to be very careful. They could say, I want to go to China and be a missionary. And you say, you're never doing that. That is so stupid and so dangerous. Wow. Wow. It's speaking on behalf of God and t telling someone what, what to do and not to do. Um, well, it's a similar thing here uh, with the Lord himself. There is that natural thing that occurs in humanity that she's finding it difficult to relate here because her son is divine and human. And she instinctively feels comfortable with him and she goes to him and he perceives there's something in her heart that isn't proper. And he says, my hour has not yet come. So he distances himself because he is doing his father's business and his ministry will be his lordship and his um, his prerogative. Um, it's not just old covenant turning into new covenant here, but Mary is changing here in her own life from from mother and carer to disciple, and that must have been hard for her. And that's part of the thing that pierced her soul. She's a very unique, blessed among women. God chose her because she was a faithful young Jewish girl who was prayerful and spiritual. And it was her lot to raise the Messiah. But it is piercing to her soul because she has to transfer from being, I'm his mother, to he's my Lord and Savior. And I'm his disciple. I, I don't think for the rest of her life after his ascension she really made any push for that was my son and so on i think that the dominant thought in her mind was she had to figure out that he's my god the god of the old testament he's my god and certainly in heaven and you, you know why i'm saying this because of the, the roman catholic doctrine in heaven uh, she is not their sin oh that's that's my son she's saying that's my savior i'm a creature he is creator. He redeemed me by his blood. She knows when he was a child, I raised him. I was his mother. But her relationship to him is disciple master. And all of us need that disciple master. And that's why I was telling you to be careful with your children because you're, you raise them, you baptize them and teach them so that they become, they enter a disciple master relationship. Not so that you can control them and, and so on for their whole lives. They need to discover that this person is a king 
and a master, and they're, they're a learner and a student. And you had your chance of being a student. Jesus taught you things. They're filtered through your choices, your conscience. You made big mistakes. You corrected these mistakes. You grew in grace in certain areas. You have certain aptitudes spiritually. That might be very different for your child. And it's Jesus that needs to, to grow them. And they will become a Christian in their own right. And they might be a bit different from you. And Jesus will call them to do what he wants from them in his kingdom. He, they are his disciples once they profess faith. And maybe as parents, once we're older in our 50s and 60s and our, our children are in adulthood, it's a similar thing to the mother of the Lord and Jesus that even though you know I raised this person, you have to be able to say to them, brother, you, you have to know that ultimately in the kingdom of God, um, we, we are all disciples. And parents can still say to their you know, 35-year-old offspring, you're wrong, what do you know? I'm, I'm 30 years older than you, as though that always means they're right. Well, the, the Bible doesn't say that. I have more understanding than the ancients because I keep thy law. You can be foolish in old age and be zealous and wise in your middle years. And in heaven, we neither give nor are given in marriage. And we don't have parents and so on in heaven. So there is this change that we grow. We are in families. We grow, but we have to all understand that we all become disciples. And ultimately, what matters for a disciple is, I am a disciple, even though I have a wife or a husband. I am a disciple. He is my Lord. And when he commands me, it's him alone who's the potentiate over me. It's not about us all getting on board and, you know, that, that we always are going to agree or that we can remain this glorious, popular family. When Jesus says, this is my standard, and part of the family says, we hate that standard, then you have to say, what, have, what, does, what does that have to do with me? Jesus said a sword would come in, didn't he? Sword would come in. I'm going to do the second half of the sermon next week um, because I feel the Lord wanted me to apply this uh, family uh, matter and we're going to close with it. So that's just to give you a, a map of where we are. I'll say more about the sign next week. But this, this is important. Um, he brings a sword. Jesus said, when it comes, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, father-in-law against son-in-law, a man's enemies shall be those of his own household. These aren't good things, and you shouldn't go around looking for that and trying to cause that kind of a division, but it's just real. And it's a great test of today's evangelicalism and true discipleship, true uh, Puritan New Testament discipleship. He is my Lord. Uh, and when you're with family, there's all these pressures. Be okay with this. Do that. Allow this. Don't cause a problem because then you're not honoring your brethren or your father and your mother. No, he is my Lord. And if it brings, he's, our Lord said, no, no one. I did not come to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's part of the glory of Jesus 
that in his inscrutable and inexplicable choice, he looks around the world and he chooses sinners in a family, in a workplace, in a university. He chooses them. He, he goes after the lost sheep and they might have seven people in their family and he doesn't touch the rest of them. And he takes that person. But when that person becomes his, that person is his missionary, his disciple, his property, his child. And they are to live for him. So how zealous are we for our master? When other, when friends and family test us to see if we're willing to give up God's word or his gospel or the exclusive claims of his son or his glory. Well, this is taught here by the master himself that before he told his own disciples a sword might come into your house, he showed them he showed John. I can put a barrier here between me and my mother, mother because I have been called as Messiah to this and I am the son of God. He made sure, and I'll close with this, he made sure that, um, as you heard from Pastor Prakash at the communion, that he fulfilled the commandment and made sure his mother was cared for by John. That shows the love Jesus has for her and the love he has for John. It's not, it, he's not breaking a commandment. But he needed to show her uh, that time is over. And you wouldn't be able to just call on me in the next three and a half years. That time is over. I'm not acting as workman in the house and head of the home anymore. I am Messiah. Remember her and the brothers came to a house in Galilee when things were getting out of hand with the crowds? And someone comes in with a note for Christ. Your mother and brothers are outside. Oh, my mother and brothers. I'm from such an honorable family. You know, my, my father runs his own company and my mother's a great mother and we have so many siblings and we're a family that always does the right thing. My parents are outside. I should drop everything and go outside and speak to them. Jesus doesn't say that. He heard it. After this separation takes place, he heard his mother and his brothers were outside. And when he was called, he looked around, the gospel tells us. And he said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Here they are. He who does the will of my father. It is those who are my mother, my brother and my sister. Notice that? He's not saying I don't have family. He's saying... We have a father, and it's whoever does the will of my father. It is those that are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. He wasn't saying there that Mary was living in sin and not doing his will, but he was showing that there were women in that house who he was just as endeared towards. Godly women who'd received the gospel, and believers there, men and women, who he considered brethren. And he didn't make his natural ties the big trump card that, uh, that defeats everything. So that is part of the glory uh, that was revealed in Cana. Uh, but the next time we are together like this, uh, we will draw out uh, the sign uh, itself. May God bless.
these thoughts in his word uh, this morning. To his name be the praise and the glory. Now let's stand uh, to call on his name in prayer.